you see lots of examples of people coaching those where what you're seeing isn't very aesthetic looking at all. And we have to remember that in the sporting environment, landing slow in many cases is a competitive disadvantage. That was Dan Cleaver, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, uh, lactate sports like swimming, uh, 100-meter freestyle, and not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So I've been utilizing the airbands. I really enjoy it, both the feeling while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. Uh, they've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into airbands. Simplyfaster.com also has B Strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro. And this is a new option for velocity-based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load-based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, simplyfaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to another show, and thanks for being here. So when it comes to athletic performance training, the process of uh, helping athletes be more physically robust and have greater outputs relative to the sport that they do, you could call it athletic performance training, strength and conditioning, whatever, whatever your name for that process is. A lot of times the terms that are utilized have to do with force and power. You'll hear phrases such as be a better force producer or produce more force in less time. And we have these, these general statements that I think there demands a little bit of nuance to fully understand the implications of, of how force is actually managed in the course of athletics and how understanding that can help us get a better direction in how we go about uh, preparing athletes to help us better understand the principles of force as well as many other topics in athletic preparation. Our guest today is Dan Cleather. Dan is a coach and educator who is a reader as well as the program director of the MSc in strength and conditioning at St. Mary's University in the United Kingdom. Dan began his coaching career at Cal State Long Beach and then eventually later on worked at the English Institute of Sport. Dan has coached national and international medalists across a wide range of sports and has also worked with world and Olympic champions. Dan is the author of several books on the topics of science and sports performance, including books such as Force, The Biomechanics of Training, The Little Black Book of Training Wisdom, and others. Dan has published over 40 peer-reviewed and scientific articles and is a founding member of the UK Strength and Conditioning Association. On the show today, Dan will share with us how he views common coaching practices revolving around scientific terminology such as absorbing force. He'll go into some of the fallacies around the force-based principles, overly absorbing landings, for example, in sport. He'll talk about his views on deceleration training, the biomechanics that go into Olympic weightlifting. Dan will also talk about the importance of being a mover oneself in the sense of being able to learn multiple skills, physical literacy skills that helps us to be better learners and ideally better instructors of any physical practice. Dan will also talk on where science and quote-unquote evidence-based practices fit with one's coaching philosophy and intuition. He'll also share his thoughts on the link between gardening plants and coaching athletes. Dan has a wonderful combination of so many facets of knowledge, and it was great talking to him on the show today. Let's get on to episode 296. Dan, welcome to the show. It's awesome to have you here. Could you start by um, sharing with us a little bit about your background as an athlete and then what got you interested into the world of sports performance, sports science, and training in general? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a bit generous to talk about my background as an athlete, I think. Um, I, I mean, my first love was a, as a basketball player. And yeah, I, I spent 
all the time I could possibly play playing basketball for 25 years, but but not with any great success. I, I guess kind of uh, you know what what me got got me into SNC was when I left university. I I, I worked in investment banking. And I kind of fell into that uh, and it definitely wasn't where I wanted to be. And then kind of, you know, as I was trying to work out what I wanted to do, I came across this uh, profession of strength and conditioning, which in the UK didn't really exist in kind of like 99, 2000. So I came, you know, I, I moved to the US to do my master's and to volunteer in a weight room. And I guess that's kind of, you know, how I got into SNC. So it's interesting. I feel like there's a couple like interesting and and fairly unique trend lines. Is it's almost like investment banker banker to you know sports performance you know like specialist and and uh, being interested in those things. And I I don't think that's a, although I know a lot of people get out of investment banking. That's a pretty high burnout. But I don't usually I don't feel like they land in the sports performance sector necessarily. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's just uh, my experience with my limited knowledge of that. But that's a that's definitely an interesting transition. Yeah, I haven't met anyone else who's gone that route. But yeah, like I, I, I never intended to be in, you know, in investment banking. I was just, it, it sounds like a weird thing to fall into it, but I, I did kind of fall into it. And then, yeah, once I worked out what it is I wanted to do, I needed to get away from there as soon as, <laughs> as soon as I could. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've worked with some uh, individuals in tennis in particular who it's like, I think it was kind of a family thing. And that's what initially led them there. And then some of them are like, ah, I didn't want to do, actually do this <laughs> once they get into it. So, but the other, the other thing was a uh, basketball player too. I, I believe you're into like Olympic weightlifting and that kind of thing. And, you know, just being here on the screen, looks like you've maybe done a little Highland Games work or you know, just throwing things around. Uh, I'm curious what your athletic pursuits, you know, that, that tree of your athletic pursuits as well uh, um, after basketball. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of these classic jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none type people, you know, so I, I just played lots of sport. I mean, basketball was my main sport. I did lots and lots of racket sports. Yeah, when, when I moved to the US and, and started trying to be an SNC coach, I, I got really into weightlifting, as, as a lot of us do. And, you know, that's probably the sport that I, you know, or, or certainly the sport I do, you know, most coaching in, then kind of later on about when I was about 30, I started playing volleyball and that's actually the sport that I played at the highest level. So I, I played in kind of the national league in England, which isn't a very high level mm-hmm. because volleyball's not a very high level in the UK, but yeah, I, I've just kind of done lots and lots of things, but none of them particularly well. That's almost like the spirit of, I feel like, like, what do you tell your students in that regard in the sense that I'll just say this, like a lot of interns that I've gotten in like the strength and conditioning sector that or around that I've seen in the strength and conditioning sector were very much there because they liked like fitness bodybuilding type stuff. They liked Olympic weightlifting, like they liked a lifting discipline. But I know myself and then Paul Cater, who's been on this podcast, I feel like you should be a generalist and be generally good at a lot of physical disciplines, not just Oh, I like this one weightlifting discipline, and then oh wait, this is a job in this field, so I'm going to go chase it. You know, so I'm I'm just curious what your perspective is, or if there's anything you share with your students in that regards, in terms of maybe their own practice or just thoughts on what one's own practices might be if they are getting into the industry of sports performance. Yeah, I, I mean, so what occurs to me as you're talking there is, I, I think I think like as we were talking about before, kind of you know, yeah, quite a lot of strength coaches start because they're into lifting weight and, you know, they don't really like to, you know, it's out of their comfort zone to be in other areas. And we talk about that quite a lot on our program, you know, as to, okay, well, you probably don't need to be practicing in this environment anymore. You know, you need to be practicing your skills in the other environments that you're not comfortable in. And I always find it surprising, you know, when, when, you've had a group of students for a year or so and and our program is an online program. So kind of they're away, you know, during the year and we all come together in in the summer and you go, okay, now we're going to do some skipping sprint drills and every, or almost everyone looks awful. (laughs) And yeah, to me, it's kind of like, you know, there's a difference between having a passion for movement and performance and having a passion for lifting, I guess. And I think, yeah, to be to be a good SNC coach, 
you know, like it, it's okay to have your biases. I mean, my bias is, is towards Olympic weightlifting, but you know, I, I think I'm pretty interested in movement generally and, and in, and in learning how to help people move better in, in varied environments. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That, that passion for, for <laughs> passion for performance, I'm tripping over my words versus a passion for lifting. I mean, I think a passion for lifting is great, but if that gets in the way or holds back someone's passion for performance, I do think that can be a very limiting characteristic. And I know, um, I think it's very, I could very distinctly remember uh, Jeff Moyer, who, uh, one of the uh, coaches who's been on this podcast saying, and his athletes do get very strong, but he's, regardless he'll say I, I don't care what you lift i care um even as the role of the sports strength coach sports performance coach i care how well you can play and transfer to the field and i do think about that sometimes what yeah what people are it gets people in the industry and then what can lead them to like a passion for performance and not just the lifting th- the strategy that got you into it i think some of that t- has to do too i think sometimes with were were you an athlete like did you or what level not that you have to be in like professional sports or anything, but did you at least play on like a semi-competitive level, like high school or a club or club sports or doing something that's like competitive that's not necessarily just training? That's like the the competitive out outcome, <laughs> the the thing you want to train for that you at least have done or are doing that on some sort of semi-regular basis. Yeah, like I, I mean, I you know I I I do think that it, it's I, I don't know how to draw the exact you know, the direct link between this and performance. But, you know, to me, the more skills you learn, the better you get at learning skills. And so kind of, yeah, for, for me, in many cases, I, I see, you know, like, okay, a, a very clear rationale for, okay, well, let's learn this, let's learn this, let's learn this. Like, oh, well, how does that transfer to performance? I'm like, I don't know. But, you know, the better you are at learning you know, as you practice learning skills, you get better at learning skills and, and that's going to help you with the skills that you need, you know, and, and I, I, I even feel kind of the learning of skills takes place in your brain, you know, and, and so I, I don't really distinguish or I view kind of learning movement skills, learning languages, reading, like it's all brain development stuff and, and brain developments may be a good thing. Yeah, it makes me think about maybe Four or five months ago, no, two, maybe even more. I'm not somewhere in the last year. I was reading The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin, which I think that book was more popular back when he was on like Tim Ferriss's podcast and things like that. And it was interesting because Josh was originally a chess player and then got really into the martial arts. And then I think he might have taken on another, he might have even taken on another thing. But he, he had said, I'm actually most excited, not even about these individual pursuits, but more just the art of learning. And yeah, it's. I mean, I think we take that for granted a lot of times, like the art of if we reframed working with an athlete and I think we kind of dissect it and I think it's okay to, to say, all right, this is a component, this is a component, this is a component, but at its central point, it's learning. And you think about, well, what are the things that go into learning? Like what, just just generally, what does it take to help people learn skills and things? And framing it from that perspective. I, I like that, like you say, the, the more skills you learn, you get better at learning. And I think that it gives you a better intuitive sense of when you have an athlete or a group of individuals in front of you, it, almost, it helps you to connect, I feel like, with your intuition on how can I convey this idea to them? How can I teach them? At least more, more um, yeah, it just helps. I feel like it just helps out that intuitive output versus just the segmenting of okay this is a component here's a component here's a component you know not that that isn't helpful too but i feel like it that can definitely be helpful there yeah i i do agree with that like i, I think you need to have a feel for movement and then you know it i mean it, it only works with a a certain type of athlete but you know if you understand how the movement's meant to feel you know then you can communicate it to another athlete who who learns in that way with with a lot of economy. And I mean, I, I only really coach one athlete now who's a very gifted weightlifter, but yeah, like the, you know, because we kind of both have this sort of feeling of movement, you can really kind of coach quite a technical point with just the kind of like a, you know, it's a, like a little bit like a, it's like a this <laughs> and, and, and that, and, and some, some information is passed there that, that we both think has helped 
very esoteric start to the uh, conversation, especially when we're meant to be talking about mechanics or, or, or some, something <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, getting into force. I was actually looking, I was like, all right, what's a good segue into talking about like <laughs> deceleration and progressing training and, and these things. And actually, I'm like, all right, well, here's the segue is I, I'm going to dig up the question at the end. So, well, to people who are, are listening to this, they usually, yeah, I guess you say the philosophy is like, let's start with nuts and bolts and get to philosophy, the deep philosophical stuff like later or something, but we'll just start with it. And so, I'm going to ask you, what are some principles on or your thoughts on applying science into training, particularly on the level of linear versus complex systems? And that's something that I like. I post about that somewhat regularly. It's been kind of a muse of mine. I, I tend to link up like linear thought processes with more like we might call like the masculine form of things like just structures, like training structures and components. And then the complex is kind of like the intu- intuition and kind of like the way maybe we were just talking about a little bit like. The more you learn, you can link up with your intuition. When you go about teaching your students, how do you view that process on applying science and then thoughts on linear and complex systems? So, like, I, I think that people generally kind of, their, their mental image of what applying science training is, it isn't the same as mine. So I think people think that the way that that works is that you have a specific question you know, training question that you want to answer and that you're going to go away and find some journal article that has specifically studied that question and then that gives you the answer. And I don't think that's how it works. Like the the way that, you know, science underpins training is that, okay, well, the body of, you know, we we look at the body of science, you know, and and from that, yeah, like we we create our training philosophy, which is hopefully evidence-based, but that, again, doesn't mean that the science is prescriptive. It means that, okay, we see eight parts of a 30-piece jigsaw puzzle, which are the bits of evidence we're getting from the science, and then we kind of work out what we think the rest of the puzzle looks like based on that science, our experience, you know, our discussions with other coaches, et cetera, et cetera. And that, yeah, so that the, ev- the, the scientific evidence is an important part of what underpins our philosophy but then it's really our philosophy that guides the decisions that we make like it's it's not direct you know from well this paper says this so we do this it's rather that well all of these papers lead me to think that this might you know that this this approach to training is is uh is the one that i think will work the best you know and then in terms of you know linear versus complex I don't, I don't have a huge amount on that, apart from the fact that, yeah, like I, I do increasingly view everything <laughs> in, in, in terms of systems that are self-organizing, you know, and, and that, uh, you know, like those systems can often work things out for themselves, mm-hmm. especially if given appropriate input that, you know, can just nudge them in the direction that you as a coach might think that they want to go. So yeah, like I, 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 I lean to the complex in terms of, or my intuition of how the world works, but in terms of kind of, you know, then how you practice as a coach, you need to have models of the complex that help you to make decisions. And my models tend to be very simple. Yeah, I, I have two things uh, to say based off that. And one was, I don't want to get, I don't want to get, I, my second thought I think was better. So I don't want to get lost in the first one. But I, I think it's true. It's almost like if you say, well, what, like with the with the, the evidence-based, because I think that's such a big, there's, there's particular organizations that are like, we are evidence-based and you can say that. But like you said, like that doesn't mean you're sitting there like, okay, well, I have this research in front of me and it says this works so I can do this now. You know, like it's always all coaching. And especially when you go to the coaches at the highest level in sport, they are, they are coaching out of their philosophy and their intuition, and the evidence can, can positively impact their intuition. <laughs> I mean, we're all, we all have fallibility, fallibilities and mental heuristics that might not work or biases, and it's like I think that the, the way I see it, I feel like the evidence base and, and actually double-checking ourselves with data or research can help improve our intuition. But I feel like, yeah, we all, ba- we all coach based out of our philosophy so it's almost like saying i'm an evidence-based coach would be a kind of a misnomer of sorts i don't know do you, do you what do you think about that yeah i i mean like 
it is in as much as well even if you just do this because uh you know your your previous coach did it that's the evidence of what they did yeah so it is an evidence <laughs> you know, like, like you, 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 you've got a basis for what you're doing from somewhere <laughs> but yeah like i you know it's kind of or steve magnus you know says okay well you know the the science tends to lag the coaches you know so you know coaches work out you know what works and then 25 years mm-hmm. later the scientists come along and explain why and and i think that for sports science there's a lot of truth in that and so yeah if if you were to wait you know for certain scientific evidence before you were prepared to make a decision or or to do something then uh you wouldn't be able to do very much I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix Formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, But I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the Shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, yeah, and especially, I think, too, about even just, like, research design, because sport is quite complex. Like, And so, to, I mean, there's certainly like very more basic research that can tell us things, but once it, I don't know, once there's things reach a certain level of complexity, too, like population and training history and, like, all those things really matter. So, it's... Yeah. Absolutely. Like, you know, and again, that's why it's impossible to think that you're going to go and find an article that answers exactly the question you have, you know, like there's too many variables, you know, so yeah, we have to appreciate that things are complex and, you know, but we handle that probably by having simple models that, that allow us to make decisions and and that are, are based in the best evidence that we have. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I did it. I knew I, I lost my second thought, which I felt like was more important, but <laughs> that's okay. Uh, so it's, uh, it is what it is. Anyways, I know you've written a book on force and it's, it's interesting to think. I think that as an industry, we talk a lot about in training on the, I think we, we tend to talk about force a lot. And, and I think we, we tend to talk about it in your, your producing force or your absorbing force. And, and we leave it very binary um, and very linear. And I know you've talked a little bit about, I think that the industry is sometimes misled by what it thinks in terms of force absorption. Like you need to be able to absorb forces and, and you need to be able to decelerate and all that, all those types of things. So from a force perspective, and now here we, we finally are getting into the nuts and bolts section, uh, but uh, what's your take, Dan, on the force, the way we tend to frame force absorption and, and what do you feel it is? I, I mean, you know, just just because you started me in a in a, in a philosophical mode, I'll, I'll continue in it. But like, you know, it, it's interesting to talk about what force is generally because if you actually try ask them, well, what is a force? It's it's pretty difficult thing to nail down. Like, it, you can't touch a force. You know, like it, it's not a thing. And you know, so so kind of the way that we define a force is actually in terms of the effect of it. You know, so Newton's second law is force equals mass times acceleration. You know, so we're, you know, what we're, yeah, and what we're defining is, is okay, we do something to something <laughs> and it accelerates. And that thing that we did to it, we're going to call a force. But still, you know, what is it? So kind of, that's kind of interesting, I think, because you've got a, you know, a, a principle that we take for granted which actually, if you scrutinize at at any sort of level and say, well, what is it? You know, if you do that, you know, five-year-old thing of, well, but what, but what, but what, but what, like you you don't really have any answers. It's a very difficult thing to define. But that's then leads on to, if we're talking about something like force absorption, it's kind of like, well, you know, we, 
absorption implies that there's something that you've got there that's being sucked up by something and that can then be released later. You know, so, you know, in my book, I talk about, okay, well, let's, let's think of a sponge absorbing water. That's probably a, a fair metaphor for that, what that, that word means. So, you know, the sponge sucks it up and then we can get it back if we squeeze it. But that's based on, well, water is something, you know, but w- w- what is force? Is, is, that, is that a thing that, that, that can then be sucked up in any way? And the answer is no, it, it, it can't really. You know, so kind of, again, I, did a, I had a lecture with my students this year where, where I was a, you know, a little bit unfair with them because I you know, kept doing the sort of five-year-old thing of, well, okay, well, explain that, explain that. And it's difficult. And, and you can't do it. And the reason you can't do it is, well, there's probably not a model or, or that, that's probably not what's happening. So that's sort of some waffle. But to be sort of, you know, very specific then about force absorption, you know, yes, like, you know, as a field, we talk about, you know, forces being absorbed. We all have an idea of what that means. But the language that we're using to describe it isn't correct mechanically, I don't think. So when we talk about force absorption, or, you know, what we're saying is, okay, someone's coming in normally to some sort of impact situation. And that impact situation is going to involve the expression of high forces, probably, you know, and those high forces probably carry with them some injury risk. And so we want to do something to, to lower that risk. And so we have things like, okay, if you're landing from a vertical jump, that we have a softer landing and we have, you know, more flexion of the knees and hips. And we call that force absorption. But we're not actually absorbing force when we do that. What we're actually doing is reducing the likelihood that we'll have high peak forces. Um, there's no forces being absorbed anywhere. We're just, um, it's actually probably more strictly a force reduction you know, strategy. I can kind of explain that more technically if we talked about impulse or we talked about energy, which are some other kind of mechanical concepts. But I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there unless you, you want me to go <laughs> Yeah. Well, let's let's take it back to something that you said about halfway through that I thought was interesting. This would be good practically, too, because I think we were talking about linear and complex. And actually, I did remember the thing I was going to say. So I wrote, <laughs> um, but, but with the linear and the complex, I think that it's very linear thinking to just speak on, you know, you absorb force, you release force, you need to produce more force and produce it faster. Like, like, but then the question is, well, how did you actually do that? And what is like you were saying, like, what is force like actually? And so well, what I'd like to do, this would be a fun exercise for myself too. I, I like like active things and whoever's listening, I think they could probably do this even if you're in the car, maybe just make sure you're paying attention to the road. But but take me through that. You said like the five-year-old like reduction, like, and then what? You know what I'm saying? Could you actually take me through like, because I was trying to wrap my head around what you were saying with that. It's like, okay, you produce, you need to absorb force. Well, and then what? And you know what I'm saying? Like, could you take me through that just to kind of, maybe as a as another way of showing that the I guess the the over generality of that isn't really the best route. Yeah, I mean, it was something that kind of evolved out, <laughs> out of a discussion that we're having. But I, I mean, it it would be it would go somewhere along the lines of, you know, okay, well, can you describe to me, you know, tell me what's happening when you're absorbing force? What what do you mean by that? Yeah, I, well, I'm going to give you a snarky answer because I feel like actually, yeah, no, I'm not very good for this because I'm going to say, I'm already thinking of like, I posted a video of my my three-year-old son jumping off the fifth stair of the staircase because he just likes doing that and hitting the ground and quote unquote absorbing it, right? But like, it's not like his feet just hit the ground and the arches of his feet just like are like suction cups on the ground. He just like sucks down into the ground like perfectly. It's like, no. His heels hit and bounce off, and then the rest of his body's like folding over itself. Like you got different joints doing different things to manage this landing. I mean, it's like so. Anyways, uh, <laughs> but I would say I'll give you kind of the answer. Maybe I would have said ten years ago or fifteen years ago. I would have said you know absorbing force is the ability to. <laughs> I would I would have loved to have been your student. This would have been like a brain bender for me. I I think I would have said it's the ability to have the muscular strength to deal with the force of the ground as you contact it you know that would have been probably my answer a decade or 15 years ago 
And so then I'd go, well, what do you mean by deal with the force? Ah, well, I would say I'm putting on my 15 year old or 15 years ago hat here. I would say, <laughs> well, the, the muscles need to be strong enough that when the force comes up from the ground into the muscles that uh, I have like wrapping my head in a very muscle centric view. I think that's more where I was <laughs> at the time. Um, that, that when the force comes up from the ground into the skeletal frame, that the the muscles have to have the strength to hold the the joints it to reasonably keep them in place without excessive like range of motion, the knee like buckling or going too far forward or something like that. Okay. And is the muscle entirely passive in the way that it deals with the force? So from that muscle centric, I would I would have said yeah, it's yeah, it uses eccentric contractions <laughs> or or explosive isometric and the tendon will or it holds on isometrically while the tendon lengthens and and it controls the the tendon lengthening as you so, so the muscle produces force like you know if the muscle wasn't producing force it would give you know like uh so you know and and the fact that you've got an active isometric action there like you, you know so again, again kind of I mean, I'm off my asking of questions again. Yeah. But kind of like your muscles don't absorb force when you land; they produce force. Hmm. You know, so so you've got a ground reaction. For, you're you're getting forces from the ground, and hmm. you have to push back on the ground. Yes, you know, so so you're you're actually producing force in in, in order to deal with it. Um, if you didn't produce force, you just <laughs> yeah. you know, c- collapse into the floor you would be a pile of goo yeah I-, I love that because that fits so well with everything i've learned from Adarian bar and the biomechanics and that's why it was almost hard to go back into the muscle like centric you know i mean again muscles you produce force like you said but more like the the thinking of the body as a giant shock absorber that's like slowly yielding into the contact like i i view it now like i look at it as like a series of isometric contractions to manage collisions and then also this was such a light bulb moment for me just with like bounding exercises where I think I might have kind of figured this out intuitively as I was going through a training session. And then I was having a podcast with a Darian and I was thinking like talking about like something he said finally clicked where it's like you're waiting for the ground to give back to you and you go with it and go with it means produce force to, to marry with the way the ground is giving back. You give back at that instant. It's like this resonance. Um, and, and I, I still don't understand how the ground gives back in some terms, but I, I feel it like when I, when I move and, and I think you can feel it. It just depends on the surface. What, what we talk about as force absorption, like, it, you know, w- which isn't because force isn't a thing that could be absorbed, <laughs> um, is, is one of two strategies. One of those strategies is the one that I, I agree with you is dealing with the force. Okay. So you, you've got high forces in your collision. Okay. so. You know, how can you avoid being injured by those? Well, you can either improve the strength of the system so that those forces aren't a threat to it, or you can reduce the forces. You know, and and the you know, the softer landing where we take more, you know, flexion at the knee and the hip, that prolongs the length of the landing phase, which means that you don't have to have as high peak forces. So that's a force reduction strategy. The other thing which you're, you know, which you talked about as dealing with forces is okay, well, improve the structural integrity of bones, muscles, ligaments, such, you know, you know, make your nervous system more accustomed to high forces, you know, such that it doesn't get hurt when you have those high forces. You know, th- th- those are the two things that we can do in training to mitigate the, the risk of injury in, in collisions. Yeah. So when it actually comes down to, to the training process, I think that like landings would be a pretty typical one. Like people will will work on say oh, you need to work on your landing, <laughs> and even that's kind of a loaded question. the The thing I was going to mention before is you you talked about the linear and the complex, and you moving from the starting point that everything is self organizing, which I think also is a really important part of this discussion with absorbing because it's almost like when we tell athletes when we coach athletes into absorbing quote unquote absorbing force. We're assuming, we're making the underpinning assumption that they cannot self-organize like a landing into it, like on their own. (laughs) Like they don't have the ability to self-organize very well, the landing, 
So we need to show them how to absorb better. And it, it's kind of like, yeah, wherever your starting point is might also dictate what you think there. If you think the body is kind of a machine with a like, you know, kind of a low level program and it needs to get updated, it needs to get updated. To, I don't know what the latest map, like not Monterey. I don't even know what the latest one is. <laughs> it needs to get to the next level. It's like, all right, I'm going to upgrade your system. It's like, I feel like that's one place people start or you could start from, well, the body will self-organize. And when it self-organizes, it definitely deals with a lot of forces really fast. And it's like, it's almost like we have to try to say, oh, we're, you're going to, you're going to, we're going to train force absorption. We just try, instead of really absorbing, we just slow everything down and just kind of dumb it down a little bit. <laughs> like you were saying, like you just make it slower. So it's, yeah. it's not actually happening as fast. Oh, and I don't, you know, want to criticize kind of those sorts of landing drills per se, because, you know, the, the, there is evidence that people, when they do those programs with at-risk populations, that, that their injury risk is decreased. But at the same time, you know, there's lots of, you see lots of examples of people coaching those where what, what you're seeing isn't very athletic looking at all, you know, and, you know, we have to remember that in the sporting environment, landing slow in many cases is a competitive disadvantage yeah you know like you know in many cases you know we you know we might not want a force reduction strategy we want to be able to tolerate the higher forces you know and you know so yeah like it's not black and white and and i'm not saying one is better than the other like in the same way that that you aren't It, it is about okay well certainly we need to teach our athletes to be able to not be in at-risk positions when they're landing but similarly if they're going to be really athletic you know that they're going to need to be able to tolerate high forces you know mm-hmm. and, and not have to spend a second you know mm-hmm. recovering from a landing because if they do that after grabbing a rebound they're going to be stripped before they, yeah. they, they've managed to do something with the ball or you know whatever it is yeah i i like that you said that and especially with the evidence showing people who are at risk they can go through these landing programs and it's going to be helpful. I think the way I've framed it in my head is, is just that you should be able to have multiple landing strategies. I, I've worked with people who actually, their, their only landing strategy pretty much is a stiffness, is almost too stiff. Like they, they actually have a really hard time landing with increased amounts of knee bend, which I feel like you should have access to be able to land. You should be able to land with relatively straight legs and you should also have the ability to land with legs and a greater um, amount of flexion. If you lack ability on either of those, <laughs> you're going to be less robust when it actually comes to sport where you don't, you aren't going to get to pick. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, you could try to pick, but once the ball's flying around and there's players and tactics, it's a whole lot harder to choose how you're going to land. So I, at least that's the way I view it a little bit with, with having the ability to do both and having a lot of self-organization as well. But strategies in there but i'm glad you brought the that research up though in that uh, the context of what you're talking about i mean i another thing that i think is very interesting like you you spoke about how your son likes to jump off the fifth step you know like I, i'm always entertained with, with with my sons seeing them do exactly the same thing like you know young kids just like jumping off shit that's really high mm-hmm. yeah. um like and you know, they, they they use a fantastic force reduction strategy as they're doing that. Like, they just crumple under control, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, d- d- don't they? Like, you, you, you see them, you know, they hit the floor and they take the full range of motion in all their joints and, and you know, it al- allows them to land from a very high, high position. Like, and, and I, I do think it's, the, there's something, you know, in, in that experience in childhood, which... I think helps you know many people learn to 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 land well you know and, and I think it's often it will be those kids that haven't done a lot of that mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of play where where you need to do these sort of more regressive training programs and and teach landing mechanics you know because certainly you have to teach that that to some people but yeah in the, in those kids that have been jumping off the fifth step since they were 3 years old you know they they probably do that pretty well and are, are okay to go for a, you know, force tolerance strategy. Yeah. They, yeah. With like the art of learning thing. I mean, I know that you know, the brain is very plastic, but it's 
definitely learning happens a lot faster before like age seven. I mean, you're just, if you didn't learn something early, it, it definitely is harder to learn it later. And I watch like, yeah, like my, and it is, it's so cool. I think like just the things that are innate that, that come to people who like physical movement and athletic things. It's like, yep, jumping off of high things for sure. Um, and then like running up a hill, if you see a hill running up it or running down a hill, that's, I mean, that's even more like coordination. And that also kind of is an interesting way to look at force absorption in the sense of you have more gra- downward gravity each step and, and more demand there. And it's like you, you don't have time to absorb <laughs> everything in your muscles when you're running downhill. You got to just manage real fast. But I, I look at that all, like even any jump, like even a Darian Barr would point out like a high jumper in track and field. And we tend to think of them as having like, like a really stiff takeoff leg. But if you watch it slowly, that even though it's a more, it's way more stiff of a leg than let's say a three-year-old jumping off the step and folding up, it still has crumple zones, like a Darian would say. Like there are still small crump, small and very fast crumple zones in there. And it's almost like the only thing that really changed was the duration of the crumple got a lot smaller, but it's still there and it has to happen really fast. And I think that that's why, you know, we were talking a little bit before about just some general like strength and conditioning or human development ideas and before the show. And it's, I mean, unless you're doing a lot of this stuff as a young child, yeah, you're, you're just not going to have the ceiling. I think that you could have later with the ability to tolerate that crumple that fast and redirect it. So, oh, 100%. Yeah. It's yeah. The, yeah, the whole, um, yeah, force absorption is, it's definitely an interesting thing. And so would you say that what's your thoughts, you know, with landing training, for you, like you said, like if someone has serious issues, they're landing mechanics, they're predisposed to injury. Like that's it's time to you could step in and, and teach them. Is there any other, like, is there any, like, I think I've seen it done a lot with like change of direction or like, like a lunge, like someone's like, like coming down into a lunge and they'll just like try to slow it down. They have a band like pulling them or, you know, things like that. I mean, outside of just landings with people who are at risk. Do you see any other benefit where we actually say it would come in or any other situation from a force perspective where we would come in and be like, oh, yeah, like we need to work on this from a, you know, your ability to absorb this collision? Or do you think landing is pretty much the main one? I mean, I I think, you know, we as a profession often, I think we tend to overteach things, you know, so. You know, we 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 want to, you know, drill, you know, and control movement. Whereas I think you need to make sure that your athletes are safe. You know, but but once you've done that, like letting them work it things out for themselves is is more effective. Mm. Um, you know, so it's kind of like I can see, uh, you know, I can I can see myself, you know, saying, okay, hang on, stop, like when you land you're doing this you know and you should be doing this do it again okay yeah like that's fine okay now let's make up some scenarios where you can do that realistically and you're not just you know doing 30 repetitions where you drop off a box and Mm -hmm. and and sit into the thing you know and and i think kind of you know when you were talking about people doing decelerations or doing lunges I, i i think you know you see a lot of footage now of whole teams doing these really simple regressive you know drills and you're kind of like that's an american football team at the college level you know like i you know i, I i'm not sure uh you know we're mitigating much injury risk by having you know 80 players uh spend 10 minutes do, doing something that most of them do fine yeah it- so yeah like go ahead sorry Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I think it goes back to what you were saying. This I was going to bring this up when I forgot my second question it was like the the linear and the complex. It's like you, if you're, if your starting philosophy is that like, you know, kind of like very linear in nature, very much like the body is a machine, you're not really bringing, you're not really considering self-organization that much. And not to mention watching athletes in the game <laughs> and just how crazy, I mean, it, it, it's funny. Well, I'll say this too, like versus the complex, if your starting point is self-organization and, and that the body will, will learn and, and given, and, and you watch how explosive and dynamic and variable the game is. And I thought this was illustrated so well 
Um, Austin Yokum, who's been on this podcast twice, had a video. It was like an athlete doing like a lateral lunge or something. And you could very easily have an athlete doing that lateral lunge and having like someone having a band on, on their hip and pulling them into it, right? Like more deceleration. And then he had like a long playing right after the athlete did like a lateral lunge, someone playing spike ball, like a dynamic situation, doing like a lateral explosive jump cut basically to spike the ball. And it's like, which one, like, so you're going to do, <laughs> I guess all these lateral lunges and then the athlete's going to play and do stuff that's way more complex and coordinated than that. And it's like, I guess if they're maybe at yeah, injury risk, like you need to slow it down. Okay. But like, I think for a lot of athletes that, yeah, that over reductionism isn't like you can jump when you look at how complex the game is. I think that we can be a lot more complex in the way that we prepare the body for that game. I'm not saying never, you know, I think lunges are fine. Like, I think it's a good movement, but I think that, yeah, if we try to do get too much out of these simple things or even like, I don't know, like I've seen people doing like just basic, um, I don't think it's bad, but like in-season rudimentary hopping drills, which I think is fine, but it's like you're already, gonna, you're already getting so many ground contacts when you go out and play. Like, what is this adding right now? Uh, unless there's something you're trying to get out of this from a teaching perspective. Um, I just think it's interesting how, you know, the place to think deeply about the place of some of these simple things in the scope of the program. Yeah, oh, I, I agree. And, it, you know, I think it comes from, you know, there's a move in, in our profession to be kind of like, you know, have perfect movement first. Um, and, and, I, and I get that. But you know, and and that may that may be something that that is important in in a in a weight room where you're doing a you know pretty closed skill and putting a lot of resistance on it. Um, but but that's a different thing to you know learning how to move well in an athletic con in, in an athletic context. And it, yeah, like a good friend of mine, um, John Goodwin, uh, like his his sort of mantra is "Coach Ugly." which is which is essentially yeah like you you know if if things look too pretty the athlete isn't being challenged and they're not learning anything so mm. you know like it, it it's essentially just you know keep you know keep just pushing the envelope of what you're asking the athlete to do to a point where they don't look pretty anymore and and then let them practice you know until they start looking pretty and then make it harder harder again and i think you know that that the, there's a lot of wisdom in that if you're talking about getting people to be better movements movers in a playing environment. I mean, I I think you know some, something that occurred to me as you were speaking, and, and something that I was thinking about today actually. You know, I, I think I think a, a lot of if we're talking about self organization, like I think certainly I and and I, I think I think a lot of us you know have have this kind of mental image. Of of ourselves being controlled by our brain, and and, and you, you know, and, and we look at systems and we assume that you know any system has to be controlled by something, you know. So like you have that in you know physiology with Tim Noakes's central governor theory, um, you know, like you, you know, like a, a, you know, you have that in terms of you know all, all sorts of things. But the the thing that I it, it's probably not true, you know, in in many cases and. and uh, again, apologies for this, but like, you know, I was thinking today about seeds, you know, and, and if you think about a seed and, you know, like a seed, you know, you get this like tiny little bit of, you know, biomass that underneath the right conditions suddenly grows a really, really complex structure. There's, there's nothing in, there's not a brain in there telling it to do that, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, and, and similarly, to make that seed germinate, you know, like it has to be, you know, exposed to the right conditions that will depend on the seed. So well, something I like gardening. Uh, sorry. Yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, all, that's awesome. But uh, like, uh, you know, I was, I was reading something about blueberries yesterday and kind of like if, if you want your blueberries to fruit, apparently they need to have, you know, a thousand hours of cold during the winter or they just won't flower, <laughs> you know. But again, there's no brain in that in that bush that's kind of you know you know got its clock and going like mm, we haven't reached the 800 hour threshold yet you know i'm not going to flower like there's examples all around us of you know hugely complex systems that aren't directed by anything centrally that are create created and expressed in their interaction with the environment you know and so yeah to 
to consider that human movement would be different would be, you know, a pretty, quite an extreme form of human exceptionalism. Like, uh, you know, like, and probably, you know, I, I would suggest it isn't, you know, you know, that we, we've definitely leaned towards self-organization in many ways, you know, like where kind of, you know, our brain and our, our, you know, enhanced abilities can help is we can help ourselves to self-organize or as a coach, we can help an athlete to self-organize. But if you're thinking that you're going to control them or that mm. they're going to control them, yeah, I, I don't think you're being realistic about how, how some systems work. Yeah. I love that with the plants. I, that's, um, and the gardening too, that's definitely been something that's been brought up on this podcast before was like, you know, likening an athlete to a plant, like a plant needs also needs like light and water. And, but with the intelligence too, I, I, I think it's so cool. I've seen videos on like how, um, I think like mold will, uh, is, is it mold or like, like mold type cultures or like fungus, like just how intelligent, like they can, like it was like mold could find its way through a, a, a maze <laughs> or like, like the mycelial right. networks that go between the or beneath the earth like there's there's an astounding amount of intelligence intelligence there but it's not like a central brain and we coach people like only on the brain like it's like okay that's the only thing that matters and you know rob gray in his book um how we learn to move talks about that. like it's like we have these different it's like these different um wings of a business like and they all work together but there's not like it's not just one person or one thing running the show it's like we're a we have we, yeah i just think that's cool anytime someone links gardening and plants up to uh into athletics performance i love that connection i think we don't make it enough uh, i i do feel like um you know i i do feel like gardening is a, is a good discipline for snc coaches actually because you know it, it, it is about the development of organisms how do you make things grow well you know and most importantly being really fucking patient yes yes like uh you know you can't rush it very much or like you know you can only rush it to to a certain extent um you know so i i always feel like it's uh this is my bias showing but i i feel like it it would be an interesting discipline for coaches but uh you could make your students do it even even now like i i see how quickly i tend to rush things sometimes i do tend to be impatient. Like gardening forces me to be patient, <laughs> but like especially like when I rush through right, something. Great work capacity in the garden as well. You know, yeah. like I've been shoveling compost all weekend, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the patience and the consistency. It's like yeah, that was a Dan Johnism. It was like something like it's like what was it? It's not the it's not the exercises or the selection. It's like it's the seven years of consistency that gets you or something, and like the patience to be consistent. Or oh, I forget that quote, but. I remember the gist of it. It just the the patience and the consistency being way more underrated than you know trying to come up with all these different training schemes and things like that. Yeah. So along the lines of, with a little bit of time we have left, along the lines of force absorption, I like to go to. I'm like totally jumping all over the place and where I wrote these questions, but I also realized that I think I I probably could have had a, a better stream of their connection. But this is this will be a good question. I think is what. Um, in light of what you said, force absorption, uh, what's your take on best Olympic lifting practices in the sense of, um, or just how to look at like traditional athletic versions of Olympic lifts where it's like, you know, the, the power clean with the high catch versus squat cleans, catching and absorbing, those kind of things. Any thought with that as it relates to Olympic lifting and then training athletes? Yeah, I, I, I have a few thoughts on weightlifting. Um, I mean, I, my main bugbear on, on, on weightlifting and, and the way I see it practice is, is, is again, I think that we're, you know, much too reductionist in, in the way that we teach that skill, you know, and, you know, we, we, we fixate on, 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 on things that aren't, aren't that important. And, you know, when I say that, you know, so, so I, I do think that, you know, weightlifting is a great skill of something where, you know, it's very easy to, you know, create an environment where you encourage someone to self-organize, you know, and, and to learn how to do something themselves. But when I say that, it, you know, it sounds like I'm very sort of laissez-faire in, in my approach and, you know, that like you, you, you'd have a vision of my athletes lifting where they're, you know, messy and all over the place. I'm an 
and I'm not like I, I'm super, super, you know, I, I fight against it, but I'm super controlling, you know, in, in how I want or, or, or in my urges for how I want athletes to look, you know, like I, I have, a, I'm very, very particular in, in, in how I would like to see them looking, but the medium by which I try to get there, you know, isn't by trying to control them, you know, it is it, by kind of, yeah, the, the judicious use of, of uh, games and constraints and activities to try and in- encourage that. You know, for, for, for me, you know, weightlifting is jumping and kind of, you know, everything's built around that skill. And I think that kind of the, the poor practice that I see in, in, or that I think people have often when they're teaching weightlifting is they don't view it as jumping and they view it as some other skill you know, that they try and build by parts, you know, whereas, yeah, if you take the whole skill of jumping and just say, okay, jump, but hold this bar in your hand as you're doing it, well, there's a constraint that they adapt to, you know, okay, right, now now throw it somewhere else as you jump. Okay, well, there's another constraint that, they, you know, and you can build a weightlifting movement without ever having to reduce it to very much. Yes. Whereas, yeah, like if if you have this very reductionist approach to, loot, to to teaching it. I don't think you get there very fast. And I don't think that what you end up with is very athletic. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you can definitely make, yeah, you can definitely make the Olympic lifts a lot less athletic than what they're meant to be. I think I managed to do a good job of, I guess you call it, if there was a word unathleticizing them <laughs> early in my coaching career on a level, just, um, it's almost like the more I learn about what, what a good hip extension pattern is the more i i realize how to set athletes up with constraints to let them like to let them be athletic it's definitely a lot more yeah it's definitely changed for me it's changed more in how i start them with like um just like the, i guess the different bar positions that maybe leave their knees forward a little bit sometimes too to like but work on that delayed knee extension or like in, in, in i should say in pre-existing positions of knee flexion just to yeah work on that kind of delayed knee extension so they're not extending the knees too fast and it's one of those things too where it makes me think about with the self-organization that i find this humorous because i've never found a coaching like manual that taught athletes how to get the second pull you know like to to can you do a step-by-step like a one step one step two step three linear like brain computer way to teach athletes to get a sec- good second pull and I haven't found anything that can, and I've never had success with it that way either. <laughs> it's always been like setting people up and helping them self-organize to that to that point where they can feel that. It's like that's where you kind of diverge as well. Yeah, and and I, I think you know, like if if you take that kind of you know fully triple extended position, like uh, uh, you know somewhere where people or, or what's sad is is kind of you can only coach what you can see. Okay. Like, you know, like, and, and you can use video to help you see things, but essentially if you, if you can't see something, you, you can't ask someone to do something and things are harder to see when they're in fast moving parts of a movement and things are easier to see whether in slower part moving parts of a movement or when thing, you know, which also could be places where things are changing direction, you know? So like, so where that manifests itself in, in Olympic weightlifting is, you know, one of the easiest positions to see in Olympic weightlifting is the end of the second pull because they're not moving there and they're about to reverse and, and go down again. So inexperienced coaches can see that. And so they then try and coach that. But the problem is they coach it with reference to what they're seeing. You know, and the reason that you're in a fully extended position isn't is because of things that happened earlier in the movement, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and if you want someone to hit a fully extended position, you don't do that by saying hit a fully extended position. You do it by saying, okay, you need to do this earlier on. And, and, and yeah, again, it's kind of in, in terms of self-organizing and things like, you know, the goal isn't to be fully extended. No, no, no. The, the goal is to protect, project yourself from the, or, or the barbell up. As, as high as you can like um and if you throw the barbell hard as hard as you can then 
the consequence of the follow through of that is that you hit the fully extended position. But the fully extended position itself is not a position where you're applying force at all. You know, like it, it is what happens after you've applied the force. So again, what kind of happens is, is when people cue people to hit a fully extended position, they're actually asking them to try and exert force at the point where they should not be exerting force <laughs> and be getting ready to catch the barber. You know, and, and you see that a lot. Yeah, it seems like that also, yeah, like the, the delayed, getting a good second pull to me is synonymous with delayed knee extension, which a few people on this podcast have talked about. Basically, like, the same thing that happens on to a degree if you flip the athlete a few degrees, like in sprinting when the the leg has to fold or yield a little bit as the foot passes underneath the athlete. Like you can't sprint on iron rods. <laughs> or like you you would have to like twist your hips around crazily to do so. But that knee if the the knee needs to stay flexed for a little bit as the foot passes underneath the athlete. And I view that a little bit there there to be a little bit of similarity between that and the second pole of Olympic lifting. Not that, I mean, it's, I think the velocity is so much faster in sprinting. You could debate on the transfer, but just at least in acceleration, I think it's a good practice. And anyways, what I'm trying to say, what was I trying to say? Oh, is you, you yeah, you said it when you, when you just focus on the triple extension, you have a different kind of pulling now. And it's interesting. I, what do you think about things like, I mean, you see this a lot, like we take it, we start it from the Olympic lifts and then it works its way down to other areas of training. And one thing I'll see is like people doing dumbbell jump shrugs. And I, I know based off what you said, I would think that that type of movement would not, I mean, it is self-organizing for sure. You, you have weights and you're jumping, but like, I don't know. What do you think about those movement, that movement relative to an Olympic lift and what that has to offer? Because it seems like the jump shrug is a little more terminal oriented uh, in position, but I'm, I'm curious what you think of those movements as derivatives and like a, getting athletes on that track in the Olympic lifts. Yeah, uh, like I'll I'll answer the question in a second, but if I can just come back to because you 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 gave me a thought uh, as you were talking, and you know for for me like yeah, weightlifting is jumping, you know so so like if you're holding the barbell at your waist, you know then then you can just jump and that's fine. Like um, the problem is you start with the barbell on the floor, um, and so then you just have a couple of pro- problems you have to solve. You know, and the first problem is the my knees are in the way of the barbell. Then, you know, so you're kind of like, well, get your knees out of the way. <laughs> okay. But now my knees are straight. Now my legs are straight. I can't jump. Okay. Well, bend your knees. Uh, okay. Now, now the barbell's where it was and you can jump. Uh, you know, like it, you know, it, it's again, I, you know, like this is my kind of maybe a good example of, well, you know, recognizing that the world is a very, very complex place, but then having a simple model that's useful to describe it. And, and that's what it is for me. Well, weightlifting, jumping. But yeah, there's a couple of issues if you're trying to jump when the barbell's on the floor. To answer the question about, uh, you know, jump, jumping with dumbbells in your hands and things, again, weight, weightlifting isn't the be all and, and end all of everything, but kind of what has to be recognized and, and what people I, people I don't think do recognize you know when when they you know when they conflate something like jumping loaded jumping with weightlifting is they're not the same movement you know so loaded jumping is just jumping against resistance be that holding a trap bar holding dumbbells doing jump squats what, whatever it is it, it, it's taking a jump movement pattern and applying resistance to it and that and that's fine but you wouldn't ever get someone, I don't think, arguing that the only way to improve someone's throwing velocity is through having, you know, using weighted balls. The, the big difference about weightlifting is that, or oh, there's many differences, but I, th- I think what resonates with the conversation that we've just been having is, yes, you're jumping when you're weightlifting, but you're projecting a projectile upwards, so it's ballistic. You know, so, so you, you're not limited by how you know high you can throw your own body you know you're actually retaining contact with the floor and throwing something up you know so so it's it's pretty different and you know we we can see that when you look at kind of you know forced time traces of you know a jump versus an olympic lift you know like they're they're not the same you know so i I'm, i'm sure 
resisted jumping exercises are great training exercises but but so are the olympic lifts and uh you know it's not an either or i i don't think and personally my bias is towards well you know I, I i'm a basketball player and a volleyball player you know like i've done a lot of jumping in my life you know the the thing that most changed my jumping ability was learning to olympic weightlift mm-hmm. you know like practicing jumping with or all sorts of other variations of jumping wasn't as effective. And, and I, I tend to feel that, you know, that, that that would be the case for other people who've done lots of jumping. You know? Yeah, I would agree. I, I have the same experience. I actually intuitively, I would, I don't know. I just never really like things like dumbbell jump strokes. I just, something about it, into, like, like you said, like I, I've experienced Olympic lifts, Olympic lifts help my jumping ability and, you know anything anything less more regressive i was was like well why why would you do this like but i mean you could also make this the i just feel like once you get i don't know like once the load is so light it, it's i don't know there's just some i could talk about it forever but i just feel like it's uh it, it's when it comes to like an actual running jump there's just a lot of differences even a standing vertical jump watching athletes like try to organize a strategy to jump with two dumbbells in their hands is a totally unique strategy to to any other type of jumping. <laughs> Whereas I actually feel like Olympic lifting has some more similarities when you really watch how the dynamics go and you're holding a heavy bar, <laughs> and so, which is a lot more forceful as it stands. So I don't know. I just never really like the derivatives terribly much, but I'm sure they could be, not that they're useless by, by any means. I just think there's other things that are probably a little bit better. And so, yeah, uh, I, I've showed similar you know, experiences. We're, we're on the same page and like, you know, I, Again, I, I I don't like to, to to stake out a corner and say, okay, yeah, I'm I'm on the Olympic weightlifting side. I'm really like, you, you can do whatever you want, um, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, and and, uh, and I'm sure you yeah you can you can get athletes to be great without ever using them. However, my choice is to use them. Sure, yeah, <laughs> like uh, lots of ways to get the job done. It's just a really fun way to get the job done. <laughs> um, I would agree. So. Well, cool. Hey, I know, um, you know, I was thinking all these other questions are categorically kind of different than everything we've, um, this stream of thought there and uh, conversation we've had. So I think I'll leave it here uh, uh, for this podcast, Dan. Uh, It was great talking to you. Um, It was really cool seeing how your mind works and how you come up with ideas as as we we talk. And it's really fun to to pick your brain a little bit and learn a little bit more about force and uh, all the different things that came out of that. So I appreciate having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me thanks for tuning in and listening to another show we'll see you next week